Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 John chapter 4. In the first six verses of this chapter, John appears to offer something of a pastoral aside. The argument in chapter 3 was basically that the real children of God are going to be renouncing sin and loving one another. And as they do those things, God is going to be drawing closer to them, and they're going to be having more confidence in prayer and a greater experience of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The last verse in chapter 3 reads as follows. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. But now John appears to anticipate an objection. But Pastor John, the the heretics over there, the people who went out from us, they are saying that they're having powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit as well. So how can we know whether our spirit is truly the Spirit of God? And of course, that's a very good question. Every group out there is claiming to have experiences of the Holy Spirit. And often it seems like the more theologically deviant they are, the greater the spiritual experiences they claim to be having. The Apostle Paul talked about this too. He said, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. So Satan is busy out there in the world trying to draw people away from the true gospel and the true Christ of Scripture. And in order to do that, he makes regular use of lying signs and wonders. Spiritual experience is no guarantee of gospel reality. So John very wisely here reminds them to test the spirits. Watch and see. Think and discern. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Spiritual naivety has always been a challenge in the church. There have always been people willing to believe in absolutely anything and everything and seemingly unwilling to imagine that anyone who claims to be speaking for God might, in fact, be working for the devil. Despite the warnings to that effect are scattered throughout the Bible, many of them, in fact, coming directly out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus again, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So Jesus said they would come. He said they would come in force, and he said they would come in disguise. Therefore, persistent naivety with respect to these matters is really indefensible. Individual believers and gathered churches need to be watchful without being paranoid. They need to be discerning without descending into suspicion and censoriousness. So John is reminding them, be alert, brothers and sisters, because not every spirit that comes to you is from God. 
Toward that end, John begins to give his people some basic criteria. Here's how you can figure out whether a spiritual experience or a spiritual message is really from the Lord. He says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, most scholars assume that the heresy that was troubling these dear believers was some early version of what later came to be known as Gnosticism, a common strain of which was known for denying the traditional doctrine of the Incarnation. So John says, any person who claims to be speaking by the Spirit who denies that Jesus is God in the flesh is not from God. They are, in fact, animated by a spirit, but it is not the spirit of God. It is the spirit of Antichrist. David Jackman says straightforwardly here, We are not to look for enlightenment or spiritual help from those who deny the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ or his full humanity. Whether they are academic theologians or Jehovah's Witnesses on the doorstep, If we are to be biblically positive about Christ, we have to be negative about error, close quote. That is well and helpfully said. It is possible to be so open-minded that our brain falls out and error and nonsense creeps in. So a little bit of closed-mindedness is actually helpful. If someone comes to you and wants to tell you why Jesus is not truly God or truly man, you say, no, thank you. Such a person and such a spirit does not speak for God. Verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Here John says that the spirit in them is greater than the spirit in the world, the Antichrist spirit. And therefore, that spirit can't get in. It can't penetrate. So there's a principle in the spiritual realm that is somewhat analogous to principles that we observe in the physical realm. As any child in the bathtub knows, if you have a cup that is full of air and you turn it upside down and you press it down into the bath water, the water actually stays out of the cup. The air in the cup creates a barrier and the water cannot come inside. Same idea, John says. If your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, then the voices and suggestions of the false spirits cannot penetrate. This is what it means to overcome them. The old Presbyterian Bible commentator Gordon Clark says here, We, children of John, have conquered the false prophets. We still believe in the virgin birth, the atonement, and the resurrection. We have conquered them. They could not conquer us. Closed quote. So greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Remember, John spoke about this back in chapter 2. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. They went out from us because they were not of us. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the seed of God in them. Therefore, their hearts were colonized by the spirit of Antichrist. They didn't have anything in them that was stronger than the spirit 
of the world. But you do. F.F. Bruce refers to this particular gift as a built-in spiritual instinct, enabling them to hold fast to truth and reject error, close quote. In a real Christian, the Holy Spirit is functioning as a sort of internalized antivirus program. It is alerting the believer to the approach of something dangerous and alien, and thus the truly saved person is able to shut the door to that influence and push it aside. But the unsaved person is infiltrated and colonized. The spirit of Antichrist begins to influence how they think and feel. Now, let's just zoom out for a minute and reflect on the reality of what we've just seen. In essence, John is saying that none of us are really intellectual free agents. All of us are under the influence, you might say. So the only real issue is, what influence are we under? That is the issue to which John turns now. Look at verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, sometimes the we's in 1 John are difficult to decipher. John Stott is helpful here. He says, the we of this verse is in direct antithesis to the they of the previous verse. So if they means the false teachers, we must mean the true teachers, namely the apostles, closed quote. So, in essence, either you are submitting to apostolic influence when it comes to your perspective on Christ, or you are submitting to the spirit of Antichrist. But one thing is clear, you are not a disinterested observer. You have something inside you with its foot on the scale. If the Holy Spirit is inside you, he is confirming the apostolic witness. Jesus himself said that this is exactly how it would go. In John 15, 26 to 27, he said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Closed quote. So Jesus said to the apostles, You're going to speak. You'll, you'll bear witness about me. And then the Holy Spirit will confirm that witness from the inside. So it really, really matters what spirit you have working on you from the inside. The spirit of Antichrist is going to push back. It's going to reject apostolic authority. The spirit of God is going to confirm it. Now, of course, John's primary purpose for sharing this information is to help his people test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So put simply, if a person or a church or a movement is rejecting apostolic authority, then they are not from God. Whether they know it or not, they are breathing the spirit of Antichrist. In verse 7, we begin to move into a new section. The pastoral aside, having been dealt with, John returns to his favorite theme, the beauty, glory, and necessity of heavenly love. There isn't a ton of structure in this next section. In fact, the Pillar New Testament commentary says here, the structure of this passage and the progression of thought within it are difficult to explain, closed quote. I think that is true. Uh, but I also don't think it's a problem. There is more art here than argument, more song than sermon, and that fits very well, actually, with what we know and love about John. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love 
does not know God because God is love. If there is a bridge between the pastoral aside at the start of the chapter and this ode to love here in the second half, then it is likely this matter of testing and discerning. Here in these two verses, John very plainly states that love is a reliable test of faith. In the same way that a spirit claiming to speak for God would never deny either the true humanity or the true divinity of Christ, so too, no truly converted person who has truly known the love of God will be unmoved to love and serve his fellow believer. And therefore, love is a reliable test of faith. And of course, Jesus said this very thing in his earthly ministry. We think in particular of the story of the sheep and the goats. Jesus said that on the day of judgment, he would separate people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Matthew 25, 34-40. In that story, the true sheep, the real Christians, didn't even realize what they were doing. It was entirely instinctive. They didn't think it through. They just did it. They were drawn toward the needs of other believers without even really understanding why they were doing what they were doing. The seed of God was in them, and it was causing them to love one another. And that is why in the Bible, Judgment can be and will be according to works, even though people are saved by grace through faith. But since part of the grace that we receive is the seed of God within us, which drives and propels us toward proving works of love and gratitude, judgment can proceed on the basis of works. As Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit, Matthew 7, 16. So love is a reliable indicator of faith. But not just any love. Love as defined and demonstrated by God in Christ. That is the point John is eager to make next. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's the kind of love that John is commending to his people. And that's the kind of love that John says is treated as evidence of saving faith. A love that is for people and against their sin. You see, we have this idea in our culture now that to love people, you have to be for their sin. Well, tell that to the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God is saying, I am for you and against your sin. And you aren't loving people God's way unless you are prepared to say the same. 
God's love is practical as well. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 17. God's love is pure. That's the message that we're getting here. And of course, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, back to Leviticus 19 and the original love your neighbor passage. Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, close quote. So that's Yahweh love. I am the Lord, he says there at the end. And that is the love that John says will be characteristic inside any true Christian fellowship. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So a real Christian will accept God's definition of love and will increasingly manifest that love for fellow believers since God, who is love, now abides within them. And as John says next, as this happens, the confidence and assurance of the believer will increase. John says that in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. The more your life begins to reflect the outworking of God's love through you, the more assured you ought to be that God lives in you, and therefore the less you ought to be anxious as you contemplate the day of judgment. And that prepares us to make sense of verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This verse is often quoted as though it means that people who know that God is love need have no fear of judgment day. But that isn't what John is saying. Rather, as Colin Cruz explains, believers who love one another in this world in the same way as Christ loved his disciples when he was in the world show that they live in God. And therefore, they need have no fear as they face the day of judgment, Close quote. The more the fruit of the Spirit are manifested in your life, the less reason you have to be anxious about Judgment Day. God is working in you. His fruit in you is starting to ripen. Praise the Lord. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a very unfortunate chapter division. What John is saying here continues on in the next several verses of chapter 5. What he is saying is that if the love of God is truly inside you, then it will reach out in love for others who are born of God. The Holy Spirit is like a magnet. If he is inside you, he will draw you out in love toward others who are loved of God. This is a commandment, and this is an inevitability. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.